that is, it's a little different than just taking over a job for another person. And I think that whenever you're in a position where you're, you're taking over something like that, you know, just being really mindful of how much emotional attachment uh, people have to the place and how much passion they have for the place. What I've, what I've tried to do is allow as much responsibility as people are comfortable with, but knowing that, you know, it, it has to feel right for everybody. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on the show, I talked to Dr. Paul Brezina about partnership tracks and how to implement them in a succession plan when a younger partner is taking over for an established partner. But before I get into this conversation with Dr. Brezina, my shout out for today's show goes to Dr. Scott Morin of Reproductive Medicine Associates of Northern California, who reached out to me to tell me that he enjoyed the podcast. And I really appreciate when people do that. If we've never met before, but you enjoy the podcast, it really makes my day when I get those types of notes. Today's show with Dr. Brezina is about partnership tracks out. Dr. Brezina chose his practice, how he knew he wanted to be a partner off the bat, how he had those conversations up front with the founding partners of his group, how he has since brought in other physicians to be partners. You might know Dr. Brezina from a number of different appointments that, that he has. He's, he has academic appointments at Vanderbilt and at St. Jude's, but he also is on a number of different committees, including the early pregnancy loss SIG at ASRM. He serves as an organizing committee member for Midwest Reproductive Symposium, and he is uh, a member of a few different other societies. So we, we lay this out, and it's especially useful, not just for physicians that are hoping to become partners, but also for those who are offering partnership. We really delineate some of the sticking points, and I think that Dr. Rosina's experience is invaluable here. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Paul Brezina. Dr. Brezina, Paul, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. I appreciate you uh, making the time to, to have me on. I'm interested because I know a little bit about your history of partnership within your practice, and I want to give that as an insight to younger docs. So maybe we start with how did you choose your practice to begin with? What are the most important factors in choosing and specifically what were they for you? So I, I think that from, from my perspective, I took an analytical approach or tried to take an analytical approach to it um, and tried to actually get data to help kind of narrow down the focus of, of where I was looking. So what I did is I actually made like an Excel spreadsheet and uh, punched in all sorts of data for uh, the region that I was looking in, which is pretty broad, you know, basically the Southeast. So every major metro center in the Southeast, I made an attractiveness quotient. It would be like the population, the number of docs there, the number of cycles that were being done, the uh, how many major industrial centers were there, you know, how many major Fortune 500 companies were there, average annual income, anything I could think of that would make it 
give me some data for that. And then I, you made your own market analysis in, in doing this. Why, how did you know to do that? Why was that important to you? Well, I, I don't know. I guess um, a long time ago, I got an MBA. And so I guess kind of thought that I'd try to apply something that I learned from that. But uh, it, it, yeah, so I, I got a, you know, a, a short list of markets that I thought would be likely to uh, benefit from somebody coming out. And then once I got that kind of short list of four or five cities, which I thought might be markets where you, you could see a lot of growth potential, you know, I uh, went and talked to my faculty members, my advisors, and, you know, do you know people in these markets? And pretty much all of them knew people in those markets. And uh, my, um, my mentor uh, for my, my research, who I'd spent the most time with, uh, knew the principal here pretty well. And so uh, reached out and uh, they said, yeah, come down for an interview. And that worked out. I looked at several other uh, cities as well, but I felt that on balance, uh, after coming here for the interview, this made a lot of sense and I could see it being a really good fit. And so then I just focused on developing the relationships here. And so I didn't, you know, I, I, I talked to several different people, but as far as like actually, I, I found a match pretty quickly with that process. And so it sounds like you had partnership, at least in the back of your mind. It sounds like to me, it was at the forefront of your mind, because if I were just an associate or wanted to be an associate, I would probably say, okay, who's going to give me the salary and what city's going to have the amenities that I like. But it sounds like you were looking at something a bit longer term with the market. Am I inferring correctly? Oh, was no, partner- I mean, like my, my, my goal going into this was to make one move after fellowship, set it up the way that it needed to be set up, make a you know mutually beneficial arrangement for the people that were there and for myself and my family, and you know hopefully come up with a win-win where you could have a, a transition, so to speak, over time. I think that the model that I pursued is a whole lot easier to pursue in a smaller practice of two to six people. And I think it's harder to pursue the strategy that I did in, you know, a larger group. Um, Tell me more about that. What do you mean by that? That it's easier with a two to six physician group? I think there are just fewer people that you have to. So it was also unique here because they'd never brought on a partner ever. So there had been three or four people that had had come through that were really good people for whatever reason, though, they um, had family arrangements or whatever that that took them away after being here for a couple of years and never really got to the partnership conversation. You know, my, my goal was to have the partnership conversation before I even started. So, you know, we had, I think, a, a pretty well working arrangement for what that looked like in, in the longer term um, before I even set foot here. I think that I approached it in a little bit of a, a different way than people that had come before me. But I think that also I was also signaling to the folks here that I had a real commitment to making this work and that um, I think it was almost reassuring I don't want to speak for, for, for my other partners, but it would be reassuring for me if somebody was coming to me and saying, hey, I'm committed to this. I don't just want to have a stopgap job for a couple of years. Like I'm committed to this. I want to make this work. What makes sense for everybody here? That profiles what a lot of physicians are looking for. Partner physicians are looking for. They want someone to come out with that type of gusto and, and you had a plan. But and so to you said that they hadn't brought on any partners before, but was it 
was it already a two partner group at that point? Was it the two yeah. founding partners? It was, it was the two founding initial partners. And then there had been a number of people that had come in, stayed for two or three years and left, come in, stayed for two or three years and left before, before me. I came on, coming on nine years now. I can't believe it's been that long, but nine years. And then um, two years after I came on, uh, Dr. Bailey, who, you know, is a young, Dr. Millie Bailey came on. And, uh, you know, I, I could, so to speak, sell this product as a, you know, hey, this has really worked well for me. I think this is a good deal for you. And I can honestly tell her that because um, she was a friend of mine. I wouldn't have told her something that wasn't, that I didn't believe. I, I, think, I think I'm going to write an entire article about that particular concept someday, Paul, which is uh, there is a certain amount for the people listening, if you can be the Dr. Brazina in this situation, I think your leverage goes way up. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of groups that have are having a hard time bridging the gap because there may be like two or three original founding partners. They're all within three years of retirement. And it is harder to recruit a, a younger partner at that stage. But if you are that younger partner and you've gotten in and now you're the the one that's going to be left in three years. And I'm not speaking to your situation. I'm just speaking in general here, but you can do exactly what you just said, which is okay. Now I know other people and I can start to bring them in. I think there's tremendous leverage in that position that you just described. I mean, I, th I think it's a, it's a good thing here and it's certainly borne out to be, I, I hope a mutually beneficial thing for everybody involved in, in our practice. And, you know, we're getting to a point now where, you know, we're even looking to expand further. And I think that, you know, hopefully the, path that we've put this practice down is something that, you know, has momentum and, and is stable and good and attractive. I mean, that would be my hope. I think that, you know, the, the market's changed a good bit in the last 10 years too, with the number of practices that have sold at least some of their value, either be in the lab or the practice to private equity. And that I think changes the, it, I think the, the landscape's a little different now than it was before. It's just, it's always a moving target, right? Was that on your radar when you were starting this partnership discussion? I mean, yeah, I didn't. And this, um, I, I know plenty of people that have done phenomenally well, you know, joining big groups uh, that have, you know, sold some to private equity. So I, I'm not disparaging that decision in, in any way. And every um, every person has their own, you know, decision to make in, in front of, and there's pros and cons. You know, I think there's a lot of stability having a, stock portfolio for lack of a better term in in what you have which is you know it's a little more fluid here because it's a it's a private practice but i think that for me i i didn't entertain you know talking to anybody that had sold a significant portion of the practice because i think that they seeds a lot of control and i think that it also you know just i think it's nice to be able to buy into some of that equity before it sells to some private equity that, and that's a that's a big reason why I think we've been a little hesitant to to do that, although clearly there's some very attractive um, you know partnerships out there in that in that realm, and it's not a, a good or bad decision or anything. And, and who knows where where our practice goes in the future? But I do think that you have, I think it would be fair to say that you always have the most flexibility, being small and, and nimble. But there, there's other things that you lose with that. I think it's it's more of a personal decision, and I'm not saying to go one way or the other with that. Now there are there are definitely pros and cons. There's definitely people that should do it, and uh, and I think there's also people that that shouldn't. You you were starting to to 
see that when this this when you said nine years ago when you were making yeah so this- I've been here nine years I was actually negotiating this contract uh, midway through my second year of, of fellowship so I mean negotiation for this was a full ten years plus but at the time are you negotiating partnership or you're negotiating employment agreement with a, a buy-in option in the agreement yeah right so what we negotiated was a you know, three-year period where I was, you know, salary, but the terms for actual buy-in and partnership were made at that time. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about those terms. And if, if you don't want to talk about your specific situation, we can, we can speak a little bit more generally, but I am trying to get specific, at least with what prospective partners and selling partners need to agree on because I've seen so many darn times and I mean more than two hands of associates that were at a practice for two or three years and at that two or three year mark they went one way and the partners went another way because the partner said nope you're not ready to buy in they said what the heck are you talking about yes I am and there was a discrepancy and whatever that discrepancy was, Paul, it wasn't clear. They weren't going back to something that said, this is exactly what we agreed on. Right. The partners had one thing in their mind. The associates had something else in their mind. How specific can we get about what needs to be agreed upon in that agreement, explicit and redundant ad nauseum so that there aren't any surprises, whether we're there or not in two to three years? I think the way ours worked was at the end of one year, they had to tell me whether or not we're going to execute the partnership agreement in two years so that it wasn't the sort of thing where I was there for three years and then all of a sudden, and and this was all, I mean, the guys I dealt with, I was very fortunate because the guys I dealt with were very, very, very reasonable and honest and true to their word. I don't think that's universally true of of all people. So, I mean, I think that I got, kind of dumb luck to a certain degree of just being with really good people. But at the end of one year, I said, you know me well enough at one year, you know, you, you know, whether or not I'm a dud or you don't like me or whatever. So you should be able to tell me if this is on or off at one year. So at the end of one year, I got a, a, a letter saying, no, you're good. At the end of three years, you will have the option. In the initial contract, I had a buy-in number and schedule. So that was locked in as a number before I came. You know, what I what I tried to say was, you know, I mean, I, I don't want there to be any, you know, I want everybody to be able to agree on this. And I want to be able to have a clear path for exit when people retire as well. I'm not going to get into specific numbers, but, you know, basically using practice valuations at the time, we came up with what this looks like over a 10, 15 year period. So it's not like that there was a lot of... Uh, there's intersecting interest in that as I come on and they come out to make sure that it's taken care of. But it was all worked out before I got here. So is that something that partners and associates need to be agreeing upon? Like this is how, this is the volume that you're expected to do before you can buy in. This is the number of new patients or procedures you're expected to do. This, these are the, the outside responsibilities that you might have, you know, you might be in charge of the marketing seat or in charge of the accounting seat or, or right. some other business function. What are those metrics that should be, that should be specified? Yeah. I mean, for, for us, it was, I don't think, I think that the, the mechanics for partnership, I, I really wanted very, very clear on the front end. So it wasn't like colleagues I've talked to where, oh yeah, you can become partner here, 
give us $30 million. I mean, like, it's, you know, it's just some ridiculous thing. So I think that that mechanism was clearly defined. What was not as clearly defined was exactly how good I had to perform to be offered execution of the contract. But I thought that that was okay because I had put in there that after one year, I know where things are. And I know everybody's different, but I I know myself and I knew that I was going to work harder than anybody else anyway. So like I never had, like in my mind, I never had to worry about that. And I knew when we took on Dr. Bailey, she was going to work hard and I didn't have to worry about that. So I think we've, we've also been blessed to be in a position where I've never, like during this whole process, we've never dealt with anybody that's not excellent. So I think that it would stress the rubric that we've made if we were dealing with that situation, which, you know, fortunately we haven't. I would be a bad fertility doctor because I only want to take on the cases that I know are going to be successful. I only want people to say these sorts of things about me and my company, like Greg in Chicago. Our resources um, are not endless. And I think that with Fertility Bridge, um, there's a much deeper dive. Or Dr. Young in Iowa. I've gotten more positive feedback from patients from anything in the last 30 years of practice. We're Brad in Seattle. You have uh, multiple experts on your team and for you know a very small price to get that level of, of uh, consulting for just, just a, a couple hours uh, would be really valuable. Okay, you get the idea. So this is how we set you up so you are 100% guaranteed to be successful in your goal over time. It's not a magic wand. Until you do this, do not pass go, do not collect $200, and definitely do not get in any long-term commitments or launch initiatives. You sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic at fertilitybridge.com. You fill out your business needs profile. We establish your benchmarks and desired outcomes. Then we meet for our 90-minute consult. We provide you with business intel, revenue estimates, and a competitive overview of the field to facilitate the prioritization of your goals between your partners and leadership team. Then we have a 30-minute follow-up. We tell you exactly what you need to audit and strategize to build your plan. I'll also give you one big marketing idea that will make you say, damn, that's good. If we fail to do any of these things, we give you your money back because it's only $5.97 and because I need you to be successful because I need you to say all those really sweet things about me and my company. Maybe even a gem like this one from Holly and Dr. Hutchison from Arizona. If we didn't have Fertility Bridge, honestly, I think we would be getting close to retiring. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever, and there's a 100% money-back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the goal and competitive diagnostic, and I will see you and your partners on Zoom. You mentioned something that of other physicians that had worked with this group before, and there are perfectly good reasons to leave practices, but I recommend that for, for current associate docs and for ones that had worked for your prospective practice, this is the person who's going to be joining the practice to contact both of them, people that are still at the practice and outside. Did you speak with those folks? I did. I uh, tracked down two of the people not that weren't there anymore. And both of them said that it was basically their wives wanted to be in different locations. And that's what was driving the decision. In both cases, they said that the people were stand-up people, that they never felt 
you know, that they were uh, you know, misrepresented or mistreated and they, and they liked the people there and they liked the practice. So yeah, I did do my due diligence. I, I hope on, on that a little bit. So when you're starting, you're the, the third partner to join up with the two founding partners, but this is nine years ago. And then you said you worked for three years as an employee. And then, so you bought in six years ago, presumably. So, but that's still, Hey, we've got at least six years to work for with each other. And there's probably a couple more on there. And now you're at a point where, uh, whether, whether it's not necessarily now, but in the future, there is this age differential between yourself and the two other partners. Right. How does, how does succession start? Again, I feel like half of my situation, I chalk up to just God looking out for me. Good luck. Not, not me, but we've started to, to transition, you know, responsibilities and I take over as much as, as makes sense. You know, honestly, I mean, I'm a reasonably independent person, but I, I really love having the senior partner help me with contracts because he's done it for like 30 years. It's like looking at contracts with him is really, really helpful. We're just getting going on um, EIVF and, you know, that couldn't imagine a, a, a better group of people to be working with either because they're, they've been fantastic, but going through the contract, looking at all of that, handling s- some of that negotiation, that's something we're doing right now, handling interviews for new employees and starting to do more of that. I think that I, I see it instead of one person just taking over what I think makes the most sense is maybe to have two people kind of co-administrating for a period of time and then, you know, kind of going from there because, you know, frankly, there's just an awful lot that I learned from each of these interactions that I have with these different responsibilities from, you know, the senior folks here that I, that I, I mean, I don't want to reinvent the wheel and make all, you know, mistakes. And then like, I'd, I'd better just have them kind of teach me. So it's, it's almost kind of like another mentorship or fellowship or whatever, um, from my perspective. And I think that the other thing too, is that I, I think it's a little different. And this is just a hunch. This is not something I, I know for sure, but I think it, it's probably a little different with, you know, founding partners versus senior partners. And I, the difference is there that the, the two guys that, that made this practice built it from the ground, from nothing. And I think that there's an emotional attachment and a visceral attachment to the practice and the place and the people um, that started this with them and all of that, that is, it's a little different than just taking over a job for another person. And I think that whenever you're in a position where you're, you're taking over something like that, you know, just being really mindful of how much emotional attachment uh, people have to the place and how much passion they have for the place. What I've, what I've tried to do is allow as much responsibility as people are comfortable with, but knowing that, you know, it, it has to feel right for everybody. That concept is something I want to explore more because I think your hunch is correct. It is different when you have founding partners. In this case, we're talking about Dr. Key and Dr. Kute for those listeners that recognize their colleagues. But when you have when you have someone that that starts something, passing it on is different from starting anew. And I've never I've never purchased a business. I've only started my own, and that has tremendous challenges. Just starting something from nothing has its own challenges. But one thing that is easy about it is that what I say goes, what this, this is the thing I started. This is where we're going. This is how we do things. And that would be different if I were to sell this business in 20 years, 
because of the people that had been involved in it and the client relationships. And, and if a new visionary were to take over and say, okay, well, now we're going to go with this direction. It's, it's a total, maybe a total readjustment of buying, at least a partial readjustment of buying. And so what's, what's that like? Because I think of all the organizations that I've been a, a part of, most of which are nonprofit charities. But when we pass down from one generation to another, it is, it is hard to adjust and stay relevant. And that is why a lot of businesses, a lot of organizations just don't, because it's harder to change than to be replaced by something that can start anew sometimes. So what is that like? And okay, you, you have the benefit of the apprenticeship, as you've discussed, but eventually you're going to want to take a direction that is relevant for 2022 as opposed to the year the practice started and you've got to get buy-in. So how does that impact succession? My vision for the future, my goals for the future, I was transparent with on day one. Like when I came down here, this is, this is, you know, like 20 years from now where you see myself. So, well, okay, 20 years from now, here's the goals that I want to have kind of, you know, implemented. I want to have A, B, C, D. And, you know, a lot of that was also, you know, trying to, to grow the practice. And, you know, I, I think we've even done that while I've been here with bringing on Dr. Bailey, because we've never had four practitioners here before. Um, and we're wanting to go further with that. And that's great. I think that the fact that they were amenable to bringing on another person two years after hiring me speaks a lot to their incorporation of my goals and meshing them with their own. And I think that that's not, I don't think that's a given. I think that that, that was a conscious decision by them to to try to merge both of our kind of visions for the future. Again, I think that I got really lucky with people that actually cared what I said, <laughs> like, you know, tried to to incorporate that into what the, the plan was for the future. I think that, I think what's going on is we're both kind of blending our visions together and the things that I think are really valuable for, for, for their vision of how things have been done. I've modified the way I see things you know, for those things and for, you know, things that, that they think that, Hey, you know, maybe this is, this is makes sense or whatever. They've modified their things. So kind of instead of, uh, I, I guess, and, and even the succession plan, you know, in, in, in my head, it was always like, okay, somebody's going to retire then I'm going to take over. While that may be true in the global long-term 20 year sense, what's functionally happening is more of a, we're merging together. And then one person's going to drop off at their own at their own comfort level. And I'll take up what comes up at that time. And I think that in that way, nobody has this jarring realignment of all of their goals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, to, to accomplish that, you have to have communication, you have to have mutual respect, and you really can't have a, a situation where you have somebody that's just autocratic and dictatorship and, and what it has to be more collaborative than that. So that's just the way that, and, and I don't think that, um, like we sat down and said, this is the way it's going to be. It's just the way it's organically kind of evolved. And again, going back to kind of the smaller practice, I think that that's a lot easier with, you know, four actors versus 30. And Dr. Bailey being on, you know, me and her meet every Wednesday, talk about everything, make sure that, you know, we're doing everything in a way that we're all comfortable with. So there's an incredible amount of communication that we put into all this, or that I try to put into all this to make sure that everybody feels they're represented, everybody's concerns are being addressed, and everybody feels like we're going in the same direction and pulling on the same side of the road. It sounds like you got lucky in, in the fact that you're doing this with, uh, that it was a little less explicit in the beginning. You had the the global vision in your mind, but then ends up being a longer term merger and diversion. And 
I encourage people to stress this, to stress test this uh, succession plan, at least somewhat. And I can give you an example. It was a, I was making an introduction between a younger REI who may want to go into independent practice for themselves and, and with a group that is probably looking to retire within the next few years. And I know both of these parties very well both wonderful people. And as they're talking, I just wanted to start to stress test some of the places where they might diverge in this time period, whenever, whether it's two years or five, where the incoming party starts to make the decisions. And I wanted to pick out things that I knew would be deliberately controversial. And, and the retiring party, let's call them, has an individual that works for them that is just the sweetest person, an administrative person that is the sweetest person. And let's call this person Dorothy for for the sake of this conversation. I said, okay, uh, let's, we're in two years and Dr. A wants to fire Dorothy. Dr. B, you've had, you've had Dorothy for X years. How do you feel about this? And, and so, they, they actually talked through that kind of stuff a little bit. So I do recommend stress testing the succession plan to the extent that you can think of examples that, that are important to you. And it sounds like you had at least what was important to you. You, know, you knew what vision you wanted to take. I think that um, just comparing the way things have worked out for me versus the way they've worked out for other people that I've known that were my year, I think that a major stress that we didn't have was a lot of the negotiation about how the ownership of the practice and, and all of that looks in the long term. I think having that worked out on the front end is hard to overstate because I think that that allows everybody to be comfortable on the front end. And it also is a time where fellows coming out, I think you have your most leverage really, really coming during the negotiation part at the beginning. Because once you're there and you've already moved your family and you have like a house and all that, it's, it's harder to move. And I think that I would encourage people to be very deliberate and intentional about what the expectations are in the long run before you move there. And I think that really, if, if somebody like, like say I'm, we're looking at a new partner, I, I want them to have a clear expectation on the front end too, because I want people to be here in the long term. I'm mean, like, everybody's different. I mean, I, I've known, I've, I've, I know of practices that, you know, basically they're there to squeeze what they can out of people for two or three years and then have them leave and that, that's it. And I think that, you know, if that works for them, great, but that's certainly not what I would want taking on somebody. I would want somebody that's going to be there for 30 years. So I think that it's in the best interest of people looking at positions to try to get as much clarity as they can on the front end, uh, because I don't think that's the norm. At least that's not what I see. I believe that about marriage too, but that, that principle that, <laughs> that principle that you just uh, discussed, we call prolonging investment in the deal. And so if you invest too much in the deal, up front, you're more likely to make poor decisions because of sunk cost. And so what Dr. Brazine is talking about is if you if you put this off and then you said, well, you know what? Yeah, we, we could talk about that later. And I'm just going to buy my house here and we're going to enroll our kids in this school here. And now we're packing up the U-Haul. There's a lot of sunk costs and it's, it is hard to to go back from at that, the more you invest, if you're putting off these bigger discussions for later. So to the extent that you have them up front and repeat them as you're starting to invest before you start to invest emotionally, the more likely someone is going to make the correct decision. And I can't stress that enough either. 
I think also it was really important, I think, looking back at the course of the last, you know, hindsight's always easier than, than prospectively. But I think that, you know, we made a conscious decision coming out to buy a inexpensive home, used cars, take on as little debt as humanly possible. And I think that that really made things less stressful going through the whole buy-in and and whatever. And and frankly, made me feel more that if things didn't work out, I didn't have, it's just less investment on the front end, which for me worked out well and made me and my wife feel more comfortable, I think in the long run. You know, everybody's different with that. I, I do think it's different if you go out and you buy a you know, million dollar house, a hundred thousand dollar car and all this other stuff. And then I feel like you've lost a little bit of, of your own personal leverage, you know, in the future, if people do decide to be dishonest and not follow up on what they're saying they're going to do and, and things like that. So I, I think that coming out and being, I mean, enjoy yourself, but, but not being overextended, I think is important. I'm trying to think of what Jack Bogle calls this, but it's anytime someone has a uh, it's something like waterfall of money, you know, and it's not just winning the lottery. It can be if you get an inheritance or you get a raise, you get a new job, your your income spikes at one point. And I think for a lot of people that you know made fifty five grand in residency and then right. and not much more in fellowship and, and right. all of that medical student debt, and now finally after all that fifteen years of debt slash low right. salary, there's a all right, it's car time, it's house time. And I think your wisdom is very poignant of not so fast, Kimosabi. You know, well, I, I just think you're 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 leveraging you're you're leveraging a little bit of your security and, and ability to be flexible. I mean, we bought a house for you know ninety dollars a square foot. We still live in it. Uh, and you're in you're in Tennessee, so you you might be familiar. A little with, easier, a little might, easier in Tennessee. Well, you might also be familiar with Dave Ramsey. That that's my kind of uh, yeah yeah. That's, yep, that's my that's kind right. of financial right. planning as well. Um, so we talked about how to do the succession plan, Paul. When do we start doing it? I guess it depends, or what it. I think it's borne out to be in my experience anyway. And I think this is different for other people. But you know, there's there's two different things. There's there's one is the practice ownership you know, how salary is, is divided, you know, I mean, are we, you know, just splitting everything up as one person fades out? Or are we, you know, keeping it pro rata? Are we doing some sort of mix of it? You know, so I think there's the financial side of it. That's kind of one thing. And then I think there's the decision-making part of it. That's another. And I think that, you know, for, for us, the financial part of it was reasonably clearly defined on, on, the, on the front end, uh, a roadmap to that. And not just my buy-in, but also how it works when, when the when senior people decide to, to step back and, and, and not work as much. So I think that having that on the front end kind of being defined has just been a huge stress relief just on our, our personal relationships because it's just one thing that, that's not something that we have to hash out again, like everybody agreed on it. I think that the who makes final decisions and everything, it's a little harder because I think there's the functionality of people that are really good at what they do that are running the practice. There's also an emotional, like we said, attachment where it, like you said, with the person, the, the Dorothy person, I think people that started the practice with Dorothy would feel that they, they kind of almost feel like they got to protect Dorothy. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it'd be like saying you're going to fire one of, you know, somebody's kid. I'm like, no, that's my kid. You're not going to fire. There's a, there's a an emotional bond to these people. It makes it great because people really care about the practice too. But that part of it, I think is harder. And I think, I think the only way that that really works is to have people, when they're ready, start to, to cede control. And I think the only way that that 
that happens is if people have confidence and trust and faith that that the people that they're passing it off to, because this is their baby, it's, it's going to be um, looking out for the best interest and not just their personal interest for the, for the practice as a whole. I think that people have to, that the senior folks have to believe that they're not handing the people that have built this with them over to the wolves and they're going to be taken care of. And that would be, I guess, addressed as this succession plan is is unfolding. You've given so much to uh, prospective listeners. And I say, if there's 150 fellows out there, I, at least a third of them listen to this show at one point or another. And uh, anyone that is listening to the show has a huge advantage from all of the partners that have been on who are telling what, you know, what's important to them, what they went through. I mean, you, you've basically given someone at least a little bit of coaching. If they're interested in coming to Memphis and being a partner that you know, you've given them some insight of, of what's important to you and how they can approach you. But let's expand that coaching a little bit further. How would you coach someone on coming to you if, if they're in fellowship right now, let's say their second year and uh, they've just started peeking around, you know, they've maybe gotten like a call from a network or something or a friend, but they're starting to make this decision. What would you recommend that they do if they were approaching you? Well, I think that the first thing that I would do looking around is, you know, everybody's got their own list of, I think, uh, priorities for them, you know, and you could probably tell from the way that I approached this, that it was uh, at least on the front end driven a good bit by, I want the math to be behind me to where I'm relevant wherever I go, you know? So I, I think that, and that was something that, you know, my wife and I, I, I think I'm also just incredibly blessed to have like the best wife, like in the universe, like, you know, we've known each other since college, we've done everything together growing up and everything. And um, so we, we really approached this collaboratively. You know, when I found a place that I wanted to approach, they said, oh, we'll fly you out. I said, not without my wife. Like, there's no point, like you're wasting your time. And I don't think it really matters if, if people are, you know, if it's husband or wife, I think that everybody has to be on board for wherever you consider to move, right? For Dr. Bailey, you know, it was really important that uh, her husband, who's incredibly talented finance guy, found something here too, to make sure that both parties can find something in the, in the in where you're going. So I think that unless you're, you and your spouse are both on the same page, I wouldn't really entertain going someplace. Now that said, you know, up until I went to a fellowship in Baltimore, I'd never been out of North Carolina. I'd never, I mean, I thought I'd explode if I left North Carolina. You know, all our families in North Carolina, my wife's family's in North Carolina. Um, I'd done everything in North Carolina. And um, before I went to fellowship, I, I would have done anything to get back to North Carolina because that's the only place that I really could ever see myself. I think that expanding that a little bit was healthy for us. Now, it's not healthy for everybody, but um, it was healthy for us. Being, I think being drivable is important. I don't know if there's a huge difference in five hours away versus 10 hours away. I mean, we were five hours away from, from our home in Baltimore. We're 10 hours away here, but the frequency of visits and everything doesn't seem to matter that much. You know, I mean, you get up at six and you're there by mid-afternoon. It's, it's not, it hasn't been functionally that big of a deal, but I think that being driving distance from family is important. I think that um, being with people that you think you're going to know and trust is important. And I think being in a, in a market where you're going to be relevant is important. I mean, like, you know, if you go to a place you know, there's a lot of major metro centers. I'm not going to name one, but I mean, you, we all know of metro centers that are frankly overpopulated with REs. And I think that to go into a market where you're going to be, I think, a little bit more 
relevant on the front end while you're building a practice, I think, I think that, that has some value. I think that has some worth. Everybody's looking at different things, but for people that are valuing the idea of a practice that hasn't been bought by a private equity, at least partly, or whatever, I think that has some worth too for some people. People should look for opportunities that are beneficial in the long run. I don't like looking for opportunities that are quick return, but kind of stagnant. You know, I, I think that just my personality has never been to do that. First and foremost, talk to your spouse. I talked to my spouse. I didn't really talk to my family. Like, so my family was like, no, you need to come back to North Carolina. Yeah. yeah. I'm being serious. So, so like, I know, but I know the it, distinction it, that you're making right now. I think that your, your spouse is your partner. That's who you talk to. And that's who you really make these decisions with. I think that if you and your spouse are doing things together and you're all kind of on the same page with what your goals are, I mean, that's what makes this work, right? It doesn't work if somebody's like, hey, unilaterally, I think this. That's really sound advice that can absolutely derail even the best arrangement that you have professionally. Right. If ultimately, if it doesn't work out for the person that you've agreed to spend the rest of your life with, that's gonna that's gonna be a wrench. And so I think that's a really solid piece of advice. So in conclusion, um, would you want to conclude with some, with some coaching of, of how you would recommend, this is how you get Dr. Brazina's attention. If you're interested in possibly becoming oh, yeah. a partner with us, getting a job so with us. For, for us, I mean, just call me on my cell phone. My cell phone number is 901-846-5880. That my email is Brazina. That's my last name, uh, MD at Gmail. Um, and just, just drop me a line. I think that for some folks, I think that for, for me and my practice, like we'll do our own vetting. If you feel comfortable contacting me, I'm comfortable with you contacting me, you know, and then we'll call your fellowship director and make sure that everything's okay. And, and you know, I mean, we, we'll, we'll do that too. But I think that, I, I think just open dialogue and honesty. I think the one thing that would, that I just can't tolerate from, from really anybody, friends or otherwise, is just being dishonest, right? So, I mean, I think that people have to be open, they have to be honest, and they have to be transparent. And I think that if people, you know, contact us with, hey, here are what our goals are, we'll tell you, hey, we can or can't do that or whatever. Um, I think that there's a lot of, if, if people are thinking about contacting other practices, especially if they're, you know, not advertising and things like that, I think doing what I did, finding people that know people is a great door. So uh, I wrote Dr. Kutin, and I said, hey, Dr. X uh, told me that you were a great practice would you have any interest in starting a dialogue? So it wasn't just from, from zero. I think that some people really respond, I think maybe better to that and they feel more comfortable with that. Really though, I, I just look at it as, you know, I'm a person, we're bringing on somebody else that's going to be a partner, they're a person. We have mutual respect for folks and we want to build something together. And if that's a vision that people want to explore, then let's explore it. Thank you so much for your transparency on the show. That's cool. tremendously transparent. I hope that it results in a, in, a, in a few conversations, and I know that it will be helpful for a lot of younger doctors listening. Dr. Paul Brezina, thanks so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Hey, Griffin, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you uh, making the time for me. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.